I invite you to turn with me this evening to John chapter 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4. In the prologue of John, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and this same Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. In the first several chapters of John, we've seen how Jesus in his earthly ministry is performing miracles, but he's also confronting a vast variety of sin issues, unbelief. So in John chapter 4, we see him engage with a conversation, in a conversation with a woman from Samaria. John chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 1 through 30. Hear now the word of God. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that it is ever living and abiding, and we pray that your spirit, the self-same spirit, would be working and moving in our hearts this evening. Help us to meditate on it correctly. Help us to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we read the Gospels, there's a question that is on nearly everyone's lips. The question is this, who is this man? Who is Jesus? It's a question asked by his disciples. They say, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's a question asked by the scribes and Pharisees who oppose Jesus. Who does this Jesus think that he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In the Gospel of John, we see Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, seeking to find out Jesus' identity. And what does he say? He says, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And the unspoken question there is, So then, who are you? Jesus himself asks his disciples, Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And this question comes to us over and over again in the Gospel of John. Who is this Jesus? But we read just the first couple of sentences from the Gospel of John, and what do we find? Jesus is the Word. The one in the beginning with God who is God who is with God. Jesus is the life. He is the light of men. He is the Son of God who took on flesh. He has come into the world to save sinners, to save all those who are His from eternity, to save all those who the Father has given to Him. It is this Jesus who takes on flesh and dwells among us. And this evening we see a Samaritan woman asking the same question. It's a question that really drives the entire interaction from start to finish. Who is this man? She is a stranger. She is a sinner. She is a dead woman walking. Jesus, the Son of God, fashioned this woman by the strength of his power And now on this day at noon, the same Jesus 
is sitting on the edge of Jacob's well, weary and weak in the flesh. And even in his weariness, Jesus will seek this woman who is wandering from the fold of God. And so we'll see, like this woman, Jesus draws us out of death and he gives us, he makes in us a well of eternal and living waters. So John sets the scene here in chapter 4. Jesus had been preaching and teaching in Judea. He had been healing and casting out demons. And all of Judea is in an uproar. Those who want to follow Jesus want to make him king. Those who are offended at Jesus want to kill him. So Jesus leaves Judea and he departs again to Galilee, his home turf. And we read in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. The fastest route is through Samaria. And so even though Samaria was avoided by the Jews, he and his disciples are making haste. They are traveling as quickly as they can from Judea to Galilee, and they come through Samaria, and they come to a small town called Sychar. Jesus is weary from his travels. His disciples leave, and now Jesus is sitting alone on the well. And so here in the heat of the day, a woman appears at the well. We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her life except what John tells us and what Jesus reveals throughout their conversation. But listen to how John describes her. It's very interesting. She is a woman from Samaria. And he makes it clear this is who she is. He highlights this. She's not just a woman. And she's not just a Samaritan. She is a woman from Samaria who comes to draw water. And so let's think about these two descriptions that John gives us. First, she is a woman. And she makes the trek from Sychar to the well about half a mile alone. Now this is unusual. Drawing water is difficult work, especially with Jacob's well. It's a deep well. And so you lower the bucket 50, maybe even 100 feet, and then you pull the full bucket back up to the top. So women usually traveled together. They were likely to come in groups to fetch water, and they were much more likely to do so earlier in the day when it's cool. But this woman comes around noon when the sun is at its peak, when it's the most fearsome, and she comes alone. So we see a woman who's not just alone physically, but we see a woman who's alone spiritually. We know that she is living in sin. She is living with a man who is not her husband. She's an outcast from her village. She's spiritually dead. And her sin has made her alone. And sin always makes us alone. It isolates us, it separates us from God and from others. This is a woman broken by sin. She has had five husbands, and the one she now has is not her husband. Five husbands gone, either dead or divorced. Five men with whom she's tried to find happiness and joy and meaning. And these five husbands are gone. 
She's living in darkness. She is broken. She is empty. Five husbands gone, and now she's living with a man who will have her. She's not his wife, but she is his woman. So she comes to draw water from the well. She is a woman from Samaria. But she's also a woman from Samaria. And as we're told in verse 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A phrase that can also be translated, Jews do not use dishes in common with Samaritans. To the Jews, Samaritans were half-breeds and heretics. They viewed only the five books of Moses as Scripture, and they certainly didn't believe that the temple in Jerusalem was the true temple. They had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and so the Samaritans weren't true worshipers of God. They were thus offensive to the Jews. So this is a woman from Samaria who comes to draw water. And notice, Jesus makes first contact here. He asks her a question. The woman doesn't speak to Jesus as she approaches the well. She doesn't know Jesus, but she thinks she knows exactly who he is. He's a Jewish man. She's a Samaritan woman. Avoid his eyes, look away. The sooner I can get this over with, the better. It's awkward. I won't speak to him. He won't speak to me. It'll be fine. So Jesus breaks into her world. He says, give me a drink. His disciples have gone into the city to buy bread. Jesus is weary. He is thirsty. He is truly man. He has no bucket. But we also know, don't we, that Jesus is always about his Father's work. Jesus perceives, he sees, he observes not just the outside appearance, but the heart inside. So Jesus sees this woman alone, and he knows her heart. And so he says just the right thing to start drawing this woman from death to life. It's a simple statement. Give me a drink. Give me a drink, says the Jew to the Samaritan. Give me a drink, says the man to the woman. Give me a drink, says the Savior to a dead sinner. And so the woman is stunned. Notice her reply in verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She's shocked. She's actually even offended. You can read that in that question. Who are you? She's shocked by the identity of the one asking for a drink. Who are you to ask such a thing? Who do you think you are? Don't you know who you are, Jesus? You're a Jew. Don't you know who I am? I'm a Samaritan woman. So this woman is very sure that she knows everything she needs to know about this man. He's Jewish. He's a man, she's Samaritan, and a woman. But then Jesus says this, If you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Here's a woman broken down in sin and misery. She has nothing, and yet she needs everything. 
But the evil and misery of sin is that it blinds us. It lies to us about what we actually need and who we actually are. This woman is broken, but she doesn't know exactly how broken she is. She's hopeless, but she doesn't know how hopeless she is. She's dead, but she doesn't know just how dead she really is. She's groping around in darkness, and now the light of the world is sitting right in front of her, and she doesn't see him. The light is shining in the darkness, but the darkness does not comprehend it. She's standing just feet away from Jesus, and yet, in another way, she is utterly and entirely distant from him. And so Jesus is going to show her just how much she needs him. She's going to show her just how much she needs life. The woman knows she's in pain. She knows she's in misery. She knows she's in grief. She knows shame. And she knows guilt. But what she doesn't know is how to get out of it. And she doesn't know that the gift of God is what she needs. So Jesus has broken into this woman's life by asking her for a drink, and he's offered her living water. And so the woman responds, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. You don't even have a bucket. Where are you getting living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well? He drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock. So she takes Jesus' words literally. She thinks he's offering physical water. But notice also how she perceives what Jesus is actually claiming about himself. It's very perceptive. Jesus is offering better water than the water of Jacob's well. This water is dead. Jesus has water that's alive. And by saying that his water, Jesus' water, is greater than Jacob's water, Jesus is challenging the greatness of of Jacob's well. And by challenging the greatness of Jacob's well, Jesus is challenging the greatness of Jacob himself. And the woman picks up on this. Again, we can hear the accusation, who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than our father Jacob, our founding father Jacob. And so Jesus answers her again in verse 13. Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The water from Jacob's well is good water. It's deep water. It's clean water. Jacob's well has provided water for thousands of years, and a well like that is unimaginably precious. In a drought, a deep well that gives good water is life-saving. It's life-giving. Jacob's well was a good gift that he left his descendants It's an amazing gift, but it's still dead. Why? Because whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty 
again. This water can keep you alive for a time. It can water your flocks. It can water the plants of the field. It can satisfy your thirst for a moment. It can keep you alive for a time, but it can't make you alive. So Jesus says, whoever drinks of this water that I shall give him will never be thirsty again. Water that's alive, water that's living and can make you alive. But even more, as the original emphasizes, the one who drinks this water will never, ever thirst again. They will absolutely never thirst into eternity. And we can hear this, can't we? We can believe this, and yet even as believers, there are times where we are still so spiritually parched and dry. We've been given the water of life. We've been spiritually renewed, and yet we still struggle with our sinful nature, our indwelling sin. Our sin erupts out into our mind, into our heart, into our actions. And sin is like septic water. It's polluted water. It's dead water. And sometimes even as believers, we can sink down into it. We can sit down in it, as it were, and splash around and wallow in it. Sin feels good to wallow in. But the more we steep in sin, the more we shrivel and shrink away from God, we get thirstier and thirstier. And so we find ourselves in a rut of sin. We find ourselves in a cycle of sin. We give in to our sin, and now our heart grows harder and harder and more resistant. The Scriptures seem cold and hard, and our minds are drawn down from the things above into the things below. And the longer we're in this rut of sin, the longer we sit in this polluted water of sin, the less we seek the face of our Father. And the less we seek the face of our Father, the more we look at ourselves and the things of the earth. And we find ourselves spiraling down into self. So our sin wants us to dig in. It wants us to hunker down and keep seeking that sin. That's what it does. It's a parasite. It's a leech. But do you remember what Jesus cries out to the crowds just a few chapters later in John chapter 7? He shouts out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this, John says, was in reference to the Holy Spirit of promise who were to be given, the Spirit who was to be given to those who believe. Jesus is saying, seek, ask, come to me. It feels like the hardest thing to do when you're in sin. It feels like the most unnatural thing to do in sin. But there's only one way out of the pit. And that way is the way, the truth, and the life. It is by the Spirit of life who Jesus gives. The Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit makes you alive. And He keeps you alive. You were dead and now you're alive. 
And the Holy Spirit doesn't just leave you as if the work is done. No, He stays. He dwells in you. He makes you alive and dwells in you for eternity. Your sin resists Him, flees from Him, even tries to fight Him on occasion. Your flesh wants you to wallow in sin, but the Holy Spirit is in you and with you. And so even though you might wallow in sin for a time, the Holy Spirit is God of God and light of light, and He will refuse to let you stay that way. He's a fountain of water. A spring of water. He is a well with no bottom and no end. He bursts forth with new power and new life. He more and more swallows up the dirty, polluted water of your sin, and He more and more springs up into your heart and causes you to leave and to flee from sin and to seek your Father. And this is what Jesus offers this woman. She doesn't know exactly what He's offering her, but she wants it. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw. Jesus has drawn her to desire this living water, but now her sin must be dealt with. Her unbelief must be dealt with. So read again with me verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Notice how Jesus confronts this woman's sin. He confronts it with gentleness, but firmness. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't ridicule her. This woman knows she's a sinner. She doesn't need to be reminded of that. She knows she's living in sin. Jesus, in other words, speaks the truth in love. Jesus always deals with us exactly the way we need to be dealt with. He always drives down to our greatest sin, our greatest hopelessness, our greatest guilt, despair, or need. And so for this woman, Jesus directly and tenderly confronts her sin. Go, he says, call your husband and come here. Jesus pushes on the pressure point in this woman's life. Jesus is the great physician. He's the great surgeon. And the scalpel in his hand cuts right into the heart of the matter, into the heart of her sin. And his words are like a two-edged sword, and they pierce into the heart of this woman's sin and shame. And this hurts, doesn't it? It's like pressing on a bruise. We're at the most tender in the place where we've been the most wounded. And while sin hardens our hearts, it actually wounds us. It scars you. It digs in. And so, brothers and sisters, what sin has most wounded you? Or maybe the better question is, where are you most wounded what sins in your life have cut the deepest? What sins in your life have festered? 
Some sins are in the past. Some of us have lived in our sin. We've indulged in our sin. We've pursued our sin into darker and darker places. And then Jesus comes with the power of his Holy Spirit and he calls us out of darkness. And like this woman, one moment we're in darkness and the next we're in light. Life floods in and we are in Christ and we may still have the lingering effects of shame from our former sin. We may have scar tissue there and Jesus heals and comforts those scars our whole lives long. But other sins are sins we struggle with right now. They are sins that we tuck away, that we hide away out of sight and out of mind. Part of us hates the sin, hates falling to it and pursuing it, and part of us enjoys the sin and wants it more. Some of us hide these sins away for so long that we find ourselves in a rut. The sin seems to grow more and more powerful. The sin seems to govern us more and more than we thought possible, and we start to limp after Jesus. We start to become entangled and ensnared in the sin. And the sin that's tucked away and held close that we hide away is like a white hot coal in your hands. It bursts into flame. It it burns you. And so when we read the scriptures, the conviction comes. Jesus' word comes sharper than the two-edged sword. It is a living and it's an active word. And it convicts us right where we need convicting. And Jesus presses in on our sin. It's tender and it hurts. When Jesus takes that scalpel and cuts down into the cancer, it's painful. But just like a good surgeon cuts against a tumor and gets all of it out, this is exactly what needs to be done. Cancer is not just part of who you are. It's a disease that seeks to kill you. Sin is killing you, even though it may feel natural to live in or to indulge in, even though it feels like part of who you are. Sin seeks your life. The cancer must be removed and it must be dealt with. Your sin must be dealt with in order for you to live. And so Jesus presses against this woman's sin. Go and call your husband here. And what's this woman's answer? I don't have a husband. Her answer is true. But it's not a forthcoming answer. So Jesus has struck the heart of this woman's sin and what does she respond? How does she respond? She actually responds exactly how we respond. She deflects. She deflects him away. Too close, Jesus. Too painful. Too shameful. Too uncomfortable. Now the woman, only a prophet, could tell this woman that she has not had, she's not in a relationship with a husband, that she has had five husbands and now she's living with a man who is not her husband. Only a prophet would know that. But she still tries to deflect him away. And so she brings up the issue of worship. Who actually worships God the right way, Jews or Samaritans? 
You see, Jesus has known her so thoroughly that she's never been known in this way before. And that is extremely uncomfortable. So Jesus' answer is exactly what this woman needs. Jesus doesn't harangue her. He doesn't harass her. He doesn't abuse her for changing the subject. He also doesn't get sidetracked. Instead, Jesus, as he has the entire conversation, dismantles and disarms every objection and every stumbling block this woman has. All throughout this interaction, this woman from Samaria has been in the dark about who Jesus actually is. He's a Jewish man, but he claims to have living water. He knows my sin, and he knows me, so he must be a prophet. But here's her objection, and it's a deep one. Who's a Jewish prophet to me, a Samaritan woman? It's the you're a prophet, but objection. You're a prophet, Jesus, but we, Samaritans, have the right religion, the right worship. So you don't have authority over my life. You're a prophet, Jesus, but we, Samaritans, are waiting for a Messiah. You're not the Messiah, are you? You're a prophet, Jesus, but our fathers worshipped at this mountain. So you see that even though sin is an obstacle for her coming to Jesus, the biggest and the last obstacle is one of identity. This woman has been living in sin. She's alone and a social outcast, but she's still a Samaritan woman. She still has her culture, her people, her religion, her identity in these earthly things. She's a Samaritan through and through. A sinful Samaritan, yes, but a Samaritan. That's who she is. But if this Jewish prophet is right, then her religion, the very core of her identity and culture, is wrong. If this Jewish prophet is right, then she must forsake all and follow him. She must not only forsake her sin and follow Jesus, she must forsake that which seems to define her the most and make her who she is. Who are you? What defines you? Our culture has a lot of answers for that. It's your gender identity. That's what defines you. It's your sexual orientation. That's what defines you. It's your accomplishments in life. It's your job. It's your career. It's your family. It's your failures. It's your successes. Sometimes even as believers, what we can think defines us is our sin One of the most difficult and enduring struggles we have as believers is in crucifying our identity as we define it and forsaking all to let Jesus define who we are. It all depends on Jesus. On who Jesus is. Salvation, Jesus tells her, is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews, but salvation, the gift of God, is not in becoming a Jew. 
The gift of God is in becoming a child of the King, a child of your Heavenly Father. This is salvation. This is the waters of eternal life to be regenerated, reborn, recreated, to be brought out of sin and into righteousness, to be made into a child of the King and to be made into a true worshiper of the Father, to therefore worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus overcomes her last objection but he shows her the promise of the living water. You are alone, woman. You are broken, woman. You are a sinner lost in the dark, woman. You are dead in your sins, woman. Everything you think defines you is dead, fleshly, sinful, fallen. You're drinking dead water. But salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Father who sent His only begotten Son into the world that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so at last this woman has no more questions or objections, no more defenses to give, no more distractions and no more deflections. Her last words to Jesus are simply a statement She says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus, having drawn this woman so far, now shatters the darkness and reveals himself for who he really is. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus says, I am the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. I am the promised prophet greater even than Moses. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the word, the word who was with God and the word who is God. I am the light of the world. I am the great shepherd of the sheep. And now the woman who was once lost in darkness is now face to face with eyes unveiled to the light of the world. She who was once dead in trespasses and sins is now face to face with the Son of Man who has life in Himself. She who was once lost and alone and crushed with shame and misery is now face to face with the Son of God, the Messiah, who gives the waters of life that spring up into eternity. Her dead and dry soul is now made a new spring of living water. Jesus has drawn her from death and into life. And so the woman rushes back into the town and she spreads the news about Jesus. She leaves her water pot right there on the on the well. And she says, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Her sin is exposed and confronted by Jesus, but now it's who she used to be, not who she now is. What was her greatest shame is now her testimony. Jesus didn't get his drink of water from Jacob's well. But he says later to his disciples, I have food of which you do not know. He sought and found this woman in his weakness and weariness sitting on a well outside the city of Sychar. 
But afterwards, it was again necessary that Jesus should leave Jerusalem. He had to leave Jerusalem. This time, weary and heavy laden, Jesus bore his cross outside the city, outside the city walls, and within sight of the city, Jesus was crucified, bearing in his flesh the sin and the shame of this woman and all of the church from all ages, all of the lost sheep. On the cross, we read later in John's Gospel in chapter 19, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the Scriptures would be fulfilled, He said, I am thirsty. He who was the gift of God bore the curse. Even the curse of the cross. He who gives living water to all His sheep was on the cross experiencing the unimaginable and unfathomable thirst of damnation, the judgment and condemnation, the just punishment of eternal wrath against your guilt and your shame and your sin. He was thirsty so that you would not have to be. So brothers and sisters, are you thirsty this evening? Do you feel yourself too lost to be found or too sinful to be saved or too filthy to be made clean? He was condemned that you might be righteous. He died so that you could live and not just live but have eternal life. He was forsaken that you might be found. He was wounded so that you might be healed. He was thirsty in order to swallow up death forever. Come to him and drink of the water only he can give. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for your Son who sought us and found us. Oh, Father, we could never find you of ourselves, and yet he did find us. Father, we pray for those who are thirsty this evening, those who are filled with the prevalent thoughts of their sins, the rising thoughts of their sins, the sins that they think they cannot defeat and cannot repent of. Oh, Father, let them know and let them believe and trust that Jesus paid it all, that he is sufficient. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit of promise into our hearts, that you would fill us with living water. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.